This week on Flock of Seagal, Seagal plays a rancher, an immunologist, a kung fu expert, a herbal medicine dispenserer, <laughs> with DARPA credentials. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we watched The Patriots. Fuck it, I'll fix it in post. Welcome oh, to this boy. episode, episode six of Flock of Seagulls. Yes. I'm O'Reilly, and with me is Dylan mm-hmm. and Michael. Greetings. And we watched The Patriot. Important landmark in Steven Seagal's career. His very first direct-to-video release. Yes. Although it was actually intended for theaters. That didn't work out. Yeah. No. But it, that it's like, it makes sense that it was intended for theaters when you look at, like, it looked pretty damn good. Had a big budget. Yeah, and that like even though like the director hadn't done a lot, you know, he'd previously won an Academy Award for Dances with Wolves. Uh he did two Mad Max films. Mhm. And like it looks great. I will say right at the start, I thought I downloaded, I mean, legally purchased uh the wrong <laughs> movie because it had that Indiana Jones kind of rousing Disney music like and I was just like I think I might have got is this like Lilo Goes West or something uh, it's Five Will Goes Five Will Goes West sorry um, Lilo yeah the, that was a I find that was like a running issue. Lilo and Stotch there's like a running issue in the film of like a, these weird tonal shifts of like this bucolic splendor and then like action film time so well, again, one of those things where this is a movie so much of the '90s that everything is sort of there's a nice string swell underneath mm. everything that happens. Everything like people get gunned down in an office, string swell. Yeah. Uh, somebody gets left with their grandfather, string swell. Like it just it was there. There was a time in movies where you go to the movie and you close your eyes and you could just tell what was happening on screen. Now everybody gets a diplo to do their music. It all sounds <laughs> the same. It's terrible. Well, you know, express yourself. Uh, by the way, don't uh, look too further into uh, Mr. Dean Semler, director Weiss over this and something else. Uh, post this movie's cinematography, because he seems to have become something of a uh, a savant of the kind of bad movie. Yeah, he directed or did the photography for like The Clumps and like Sandy X, Wexler, Triple X and Click. Yeah. Like just, a lot of Sandler stuff. Yeah, yeah Date Night. Uh, Weird. Yeah, I'm just... I mean, what happened? it's Blart? obvious that this is a man who is able to choose his projects. Yes. Well, it was funny that the other kind of like 90s action film that he did was uh, Firestorm starring a football star turned failed actor Howie Long. <laughs> yep. I, I, thought, I thought that was a, a funny thing. To He's see. no Howie Mandel. Oh, God. Fist bump to that mm-hmm. because of the germs. So... Let's start with this movie. The rousing opening scene? Yeah. yeah. Two kind of nice pastoral yeah. overtones. Quite bucolic, as you said. Uh, on the Seagal. Wait, yeah. is that the disease they end up getting? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Alia. 
and uh, just the you know very nice cinematography, yeah, obviously yeah, you know yeah sort of that jing 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 yeah like uh yeah two ranchers two two old boys of the west coming over the hills of Montana chasing down was cattle it? I think cattle yes but then they find a horse oh yes they do and then the very Segal's first line not only does shit get political but that the classic like Segal trope of the only reason there's other human beings in the movie, uh, they're just foils to further develop his character because he does the, like, these antibiotics don't work no more. So that's sort of like, you know, it's either a brilliant statement on a, a antimicrobial stewardship or some sort of, like, crazy anti-vaxxer thing. And also he puts his friend in line who disagrees with him and wants to shoot the calf. So it's like not <laughs> only is he dropping some political shit to show that he's like a natural dude and it's like an anti uh, overusing antibiotics thing, but also he's just like, this guy's my bitch. And it's just like, it's hilarious that it's like that entire scene, that's the only purpose of it. He is like the Jesus of Montana in yeah. this movie. <laughs> he's like, everything he does just touches a, a little bit of each of us There's every <laughs> single scene. I don't know where it came from, but he carpenters pretty good. Heals us up to real good. Restarted my kidney. He's a real folksy one. Oh boy. I like uh, that this movie, again, like uh, a lot of films, a lot of his earlier films that sort of uh, now have added meaning to them. This one has both shades of the alt left and the alt right in them. That's actually a good point. <laughs> shades true. even seems like a bit of an understatement. <laughs> yeah, I already. Very confused as to what exactly Steven Seagal is in this movie. He's like a rancher that also has a doctor's office. Also, previously worked for the government. It's a big And stretch. also has like weapons training and arts training. He is a he is a very, arguably about as uh, biblical a figure as he's ever been in like this. Like he's like straight up like Greek mythic. Yeah. In this movie. Yeah. The uh. One line that I thought was funny right after they kind of get back to the ranch after they kind of had this whole thing about, uh, you know, are they or are they not going to save the calf was when uh, Frank says, uh, oh, yeah, you're going to cure with some of that uh, home cooked jungle juice. And I was like, <laughs> seems, seems uh, I, I was going to say vaguely racist to be to sound smart, but I mean, it's just straight up racist. <laughs> it's like, jungle, I, I, I don't know the exact etymology of jungle juice but i would assume uh it comes from a bad place that and it's like a plains native and like a friend mm. and clearly like they've looked after animals before like this seems they're somehow in partnership i yeah. think yeah he's a racist i guess maybe another thing uh we should talk about early on is that this book was actually uh, sorry that this movie is actually based on a book called it's actually funny so it was published under three different titles, The Last Canadian, The Last American, and Gary, for this, is the best title of all, Death Wind. <laughs> so the book is about uh, an American expat who moves to Canada, and then while he's living in Canada, he gets wind, pun intended, of uh, some sort of like virus that's destroying the United States. He's so, here all night, folks. <laughs> so he takes his family to live in like this remote cabin, and then the story kind of turns into this insane post-apocalyptic thing where there's like a Cold War message and blah, blah, blah. So long story short, to say it was adapted from it, it was a very liberal adaptation. 
Because, I mean, based on the quick summary I gave is, like, aside from a virus being involved and aside from, like, the setting being kind of sort of related, like, yeah, there's there's no Russians. Uh, there's nothing remotely. The, 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 the novel's not like, it gets, like, Dawn of the Dead-esque at times where he's, like, looting and stuff. But anyways, it's, uh... But to be fair, a lot of movies take very liberal adaptations of the sort of oh, sure, material sure. they're based on. But yeah, it's pretty wild for this one. Mm. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of liberal adaptations going on. Uh, at one point, he tells it, it sounds like he's trying to sell like a product line from Goop, where he tells a man, "Hey, we'll restart your kidney. Just follow this vitamin and food yeah. regimen, and you won't have to go on dialysis." Yeah. That's not how that works. Once What's- you're Western what? medicine. Oh, sorry. Oh no, continue. Western medicine is in the business of keeping you sick. Uh, Western medicine is in the business of getting you well. Which is like a thing that they said in like a Seinfeld episode yeah. once. <laughs> and I guess at this point, sh- what what ethnicity is Steven Seagal playing in this? That's American. Like it's pretty clearly laid out, isn't it? Is it? Yeah, because that's like kind of the the second act sort of reveal i guess which is he calls the guy dad uh, does he says, yeah he says we're oh. going to grandpa's house to- well, we're thought, going to grandpa's house I but i thought his, it's his daughter's grandpa i thought they were in, in implying that his daughter is half native and that his wife was native because his name is wesley mclaren yeah and i mean i'm not saying that someone's name necessarily dictates their ethnicity but like like everything that i've read that's always a big question is like how did he not get sick because it's not really stated that maybe he's i'm missing so, like is he like what so I guess she's established. She's got a daughter in this movie. Yeah, who his was, wife is dead. I think his wife yeah. Yeah. is the family, like, is related to the natives that he runs into later in the film. Then why does he practice like this brand of native? He's medicine? kind of adopted it, just like he always does with everything. But then he says to his daughter in the car, "Anytime you get something wrong, that is your mother's side. Anytime you get something right, that is my Whoa. side." Yeah, never thought. Of- I think I think he was playing native. I'm Do you think gonna, oh. why? Like, and I think that's why that second act term was so sour because they did it in such a oh, like just such an awful Hollywood racial coded way. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. That, yeah, I I thought he was. That would explain why he doesn't die. But I yeah, feel, that's the other I thing. He's like, also immune to the yeah. thing. I feel like well, I because watched... they've been drinking the tea. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, Yo, blew it. Yeah. So... <laughs> So next scene after the rancher, after the ranch thing, do we go to... Introduced to the antagonist. That's like a hard cut. It's like, I think, is there like a little news interstitial or something between? Yeah. And actually the news thing is uh, an interesting part because in the news thing, when they're talking about, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this dude's name, Gayard Sertain. Sertain? Gayard Sertain. Yeah. So only in that news thing, where it's like a sort of like voiceover type thing, do they say neo-nazi and that for the rest of the film there's no mention by the militia guys there's no swastikas so my assumption is that it was that's something that's added in post to make him seem badder because for the rest of the movie there's no like oh white men are no good blah 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 sorry black men are no good uh (laughs) and like there's no the whole neo-nazi thing is only mentioned that one time and for the rest of the film it's never mentioned again yeah i didn't even pick up on that and normally I'm so studious with my uh, Seagal lessons. Another great thing about that guy is the first thing I thought when I saw him was, that's the security guard from all the Ernest films. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so it's him and then his elderly mute brother. Yeah. He does that. He also has a guest spot on a Simpsons episode, too. Ooh. He's, uh, you know, that spinoff episode. 
plays the uh, police chief when Wiggum's down in uh, <laughs> New Orleans. Yeah. Oh. Lord, I wish you were so fat. <laughs> that guy. It's too hard. That one? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. So, anyways, <laughs> he is locked up in his compound with his followers, his militiamen. The Waco, Texas kind of situation, which was alluded to in, like, the, the news. Yeah. yeah. And that's odd because it, throughout the, the, the neo-Nazi thing is odd because throughout the rest of the movie... Everybody keeps saying, oh, like, it's not illegal to play army and things like that. Yeah. Like, there's uh, there's no mention of the other darker side of those things. And you would have thought shades of that might have come out in their interactions with these native doctors. Anyways. Especially since they're supposed to be, like, villainized. Like, they're the villains. Mm-hmm. No reason to dress them up. And we've seen, like, seems like all movies add layers to guys where, like, they make them, like, child molesters out of nowhere. Like, yeah. it's, it's a weird... Anyways. So... This guy has his entire compound with him. Everybody in the compound is with him. They're talking about what the Constitution means and how they are. Oh, what's the phrase he uses at the end of the film? Uh, a gentleman farmer or something like that. Like a man who lives for the Constitution, but also farms and things like that. And that's just the way anything that is done on his land, he should have sort of authority over dominion over that's what the principles of how we're living and then an odd little offshoot about fdr and how fdr was kind of a good guy but also got screwed over by the new deal and things like that yeah it really felt weird that he brought up fdr because like i don't he really didn't seem like he'd be the sort of guy to need to pay lip service to fdr like most republicans now would not really yeah anyways he's uh he's preaching to his flock which is a really big militia for like this guy in the middle of Montana. Like it was a good 30 people. I want to say like, that's even more. Yeah. And, uh, they're in this standoff with, uh, now this, I was looking at were they like the SWAT team already or was it the FBI? It was, it was the ATF. The ATF. That was who did the, the David crash thing. Yes. Okay. There was a lot of reference to that. And then the FBI, which in reality, I don't think would actually take place. More of an ATF. Kind of like, yeah, exactly. It'd be like one or the other. Also interesting uh, the kind of have a we- the weird hindsight that we do now, this whole sort of uh, railing against the constricting gun laws seemed really <laughs> kind of like eh, quaint or like just sort of like dated in a really kind of scary way. Mm. Uh, and the fact that he kind of villainized the ATF where I really haven't heard like the like NRA and the ATF not kind of been buddy buddy for like a while. Like, I mean, the NRA are always like, they always, they always want to push it, you know? And so they're like, oh, you know, in Florida, you know, you could get any gun that you want, but it's still hard to get suppressors like silencers. And that a lot of people, they actually get rid of this. People will incorporate to get a silencer because there's less legal red tape <laughs> than getting it in their own name. And also there's some sort of legal thing where like, there's less chance of you getting in trouble or being like put on a list or something. So there's actually a website and it will create a corporation for you and buy a silencer for your gun. Oh God. Yeah. Like the, so yeah, the, that like, there's still a lot of like crazy gun nuts. Yeah. That, like just like want more and more and more and more. Yeah. I know. It's just like in the context of like uh movie making, uh, it felt weird to have like a, like an anti like ATF screed, uh, when like now you think of it as like kind of like most liberal it's been in years in terms of like yeah. what they allow people to get away with. Yeah. And I also found it really interesting that then he had like this whole militia of people who really didn't seem to be like, like into like 
arming themselves. Like I didn't notice anyone holding guns in those scenes or anything. And I was constantly confused in this movie where everyone's weapons were coming from. <laughs> like there's a couple scenes where like LQ Jones, the cowboy just like reaches into like oh, know, that was a funny scene. concrete barrels and just I has like high, high caliber weaponry. And like yeah. this entire militia like seems to arm itself out of nowhere. It's just really confusing. <laughs> But the odd thing about this is like the militia isn't rallying against uh, sort of like the federal government coming and taking their lands that they use for grazing or anything like that. Like the last, who's the last, the group in Texas that Bundy pulled up? No, oh, no, no. More like yeah, yeah, two yeah. years ago. And they were getting like Amazon Prime and they were live streaming everything and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. And that was all just about grazing land rights yeah. and stuff like that. Their whole thing is because their leader had set up this, uh, <laughs> he had sent a video to a judge of him cutting off the barrel to his gun. And then, like, the response to that, the ATF response to that seems kind of huge. Yeah, like, the 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 way sort of, like, the legal side of things or the law enforcement side of things plays out in that context is really strange because it's like, they don't really tell you how the standoff got started. And then he he gives himself up after swallowing this mysterious substance, so you're like, oh, like, what is this about? And so the 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 ATF. What was it? NAM NAM 37. And so the ATF takes this, you know, like a high level target uh, who is part of this crazy armed militia and drives them with a, this huge convoy of uh, armed agents directly into a small town courthouse. Directly to his yeah, arraignment, yeah. yeah. Based on my knowledge of law enforcement and legal system, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> I think that it takes some time, and that you have to spend some time in jail yeah. before your process. Like, I mean, most people sit in jail for like a year before they go to tr- <laughs> Like, But it's so quick, it's blocking up Seagal's tr- uh, morning so, commute. Yeah. And then, oh, sorry. And on top of that, too, just as a sidebar, like, uh, for a crime where the ATF and the FBI are involved, like, I don't know if you do it in, like, the little town county yeah, courthouse. Like, <laughs> yeah, what, yeah, yeah. once it got that level, it would be, like, a federal thing. Because yeah. that's one thing he's always talking about, that, like, this this should be a municipal issue. This is not a federal issue. Yeah. So, I mean, it's clear that... It is if, a municipal issue. He's in the town courthouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Yeah, so now we're in the. We're I'd in, also like to pay off my parking fines while I'm here. Yeah, so now we're now we're in the courtroom. You validate <laughs> where there's a bunch of ridiculous stuff that happens in the courtroom. So uh, he refuses to speak, and instead, uh, the most telling part of this scene is when the judge comes in. Everybody stands except for him because this motherfucker doesn't recognize the court. Oh yeah, he's been brought in by a foreign government, according to him. It, it's immediately apparent that we have a badass over here. <laughs> Also, also kind of quickly in this hand, sort of quickly establishing himself as sort of the ironic counterfigure to Seagal, as I read it, because Seagal is revealed to be like a native and technically could not recognize the government on this land. Whereas this guy, this white, you know, pudge ball in Montana uh, is now claiming like that he cannot be recognized by the government and he's doing it in sort of an inappropriate way. So, yeah. He he's decided I'm not going to speak. Instead, I'm going to send a video. But of course, the video is him committing a crime on camera. Which is, I thought the video is what got him brought in. No, no, I think it's that like that it was like a surprise to him because the 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 judge the way his reaction was just like because you've shown me this video, I have to arrest you now. 
Like it seemed like there was like new evidence or something where it's just like, oh, what was, we've what got, was he I arrested got your video. for then in the first place? I'm not really sure. Like just, you, how did this you could off? be right. Either way, it's pretty dumb. I that, thought like, there was a line or two where the judge said, got that video you sent me. Oh, as in I've already watched it and that's yeah. why the fuzz was on you. That's what I assumed. Okay. And that sort of plays more into his plan to sure, sure. poison the town. Sure. Somebody poison the water hole. Yeah, and I mean, let's be real. Like, these first 10, 15 minutes of the movie is really just hustling to set up the main sort of plot device of this movie, which is the contagion, right? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is just, let's, how quickly can we get to the contagion part? Yeah. yeah. So the, like, I understand that they needed to do this for, like, <laughs> the drama of it, but they keep on, throughout the film, they keep on saying, airborne contagion, airborne contagion, airborne contagion. But that the outbreak is started by someone spitting in someone else's face. And so, I mean, essentially, like, I mean, everyone would have gotten sick either way. And so, I mean, you know, maybe he just wanted to really spit in the guy's face. But, like, the way they play it off is that the judge is the first person infected because he spit in his face. But if it's an airborne contagion, shouldn't everyone in the courtroom... Here's the thing. When I'm a militiaman, I'm taking an experimental drug by the U.S. government that technically only DARPA knows about but I've already taken my immunization to it. I'm going to sneeze over everybody I don't like. And it's just a matter of principle. It's not that I know they'll die just because they're in the same airspace as me. I just hate that guy that much. And I don't recognize his government. This is, uh, what do they call it, a kangaroo court? Fuck all of you. I will have a two-inch shotgun that will fire wildly inaccurately and catch all the deer at once. Yeah, but to poke a hole in that, he also does, like, apply this substance right to his mouth. Mm. Like, he takes, which is also, like, absurd, like, to take, like, just a clinical dose of yeah, this stuff, that, put it right that, in your mouth, and then to be holding it the entire that, time that, that, to get to the courtroom. Again, like, what like the I, fuck? I'm certainly not, you know, an infectious disease expert, but, I mean, I have to assume that if something actually isn't airborne contagion, and it was so powerful that... You know, the uh, micrograms floating through the air are enough to kill someone. A hundred times more infectious than anthrax is what they say in the film. If you took like 10 milliliters of it, I have to assume that you would just melt right there. Like, it it just seems insane. You know, like it's like with anthrax. It's like, oh, it comes out. If you just like ate six grams of anthrax, uh, you know, wouldn't you just be like, like, it's just, it seems a little, when it's and it's that green stuff and he's got, it's like those fake, like acid yeah, scenes. Just absurdly in, like, poisonous yeah. looking. Yeah. <laughs> Where someone does like, uh, 15 grams of acid, yeah. <laughs> you know, when it, it, you know, in reality, the dose is like, uh, like 200 micrograms, like 200 millions of a gram. And so it's like, yeah, the idea about doing that much acid that you're, 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 you know, you would just be like uh, swimming through a field of Gene Wilder's hair for like a month if you did <laughs> So like, <laughs> sounds like someone had a good experience recently. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> um, I was actually very glad this entire movie that I had almost no knowledge of like airborne contagions or just medicine in general, because even though I knew nothing about it, the whole movie was like just seemed extremely on dubious footing, which I mean, Boy. we poke a lot of plot holes and things, but a lot of movies are filled with these sorts of flat, just blindingly bad inaccuracies. But the one thing that I differentiate with all these Steven Seagal things is that he like hangs his major point of this movie on these like just wild machinations of how science could possibly work. Like you look at like something like gravity, like you have like someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, like 
bitching about how the star field doesn't move right in gravity. <laughs> sure. But like that doesn't really affect it's not how the movie goes. The yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that's just a small thing. But with Steen Seagal, this entire movie is hinging on just all these wild like medical applications and theories that I'm just like, I'm glad I can just check out and just be like, you know, fine. I can buy into it because I don't know dick about this. But I'm also like, oh my God, if I was like anyone in a medical profession watching this, I must have just been like tearing my own eyes out. Let's redo this movie and call it Montana's Buyers Club. (laughs) Oh, another funny thing. Uh, Did you guys see who his assistant in the doctor's office was? Nope. Someone not from Montana. Daughter. Oh, is it actually? Yeah. Ayako Fujitani who went on to direct a film written by the guy who directed the last episode of Neon Genesis Evangelion. What? what? Which we should watch, actually. That'd be interesting. We could actually watch a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. We got some good ones in the pipeline. I'm thinking about it. <laughs> uh, so, okay. After that, uh, I believe we cut to Steven Seagal as a practitioner oh, yeah. of, uh, of medicine. Yeah. You know, all the local folks. Yeah. Uh, kind of, again, reestablishing himself as Montana Jesus. Yeah, just like... A, this is where he gets into his uh, Gwyneth Paltrow goop diet for the guy with the dialysis. More like good guy character building again. Yep, yep. And uh, he meets this uh, lady whose husband died, but he stood by her bedside while she was dying. And, oh, my God, and nursed her back to life. And isn't that beautiful? And, my God, don't you just want to get behind Steven Seagal? Seagal doesn't take money from people who can't afford it. Exactly, yeah. Only he's... blackberry pies. <laughs> Only blackberry pies. No knives. <laughs> I don't care if it was your the, late husband. The thing with the knife was hilarious. So that she's going to offer him the knife for payment. He decides because it's a domestic uh, steel knife that this is too good and that the blackberry pie was payment enough for uh, his... his uh, Whatever he did. Yeah. But then that I, I, just, I can just picture the writer in his like t- tank apartment writing this scene knowing that he's going to bring the knife back later in the film just be like just you wait viewer <laughs> oh it should <laughs> be something for you. it should be mentioned that this movie was entirely written under pseudonym yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there's so. like there's a bunch of funny stuff about people's names being removed later yeah. on and stuff yeah yeah uh was it Ayers was the name that might have been involved who mm. went on to do things anyways yeah no one wanted to take credit yeah. for this and i don't blame them but uh, yes, yeah, so they're, they're are you kidding me? This is my favorite one yet of all the of all the movies in the podcast. I think maybe just because the third act problems were all up in my head, not just sort of hand to hand combat. Just second to exit wounds here. Mm. Yeah, I mean this. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but this is really, really ludicrous for me. Yeah. Okay. So uh, he's in his doctor's office, and then he's getting a call. He gets a call in from an unnamed guy. Uh, telling him we need you on this secret project. Oh no no! And- he starts off the phone call by making a joke about uh, being sexually attracted to a hog, and that he wants to marry her. And only at that point in the conversation is like Stephen Scott's playing along. This guy be like, "I got this real good looking hog," and Stephen Scott's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And only at the point where he's like, "I gotta marry her," he's like, "Who the fuck is this?" <laughs> It's like he let it like that's the longest. Oh, Steven Seagal was also an ordained minister in this. You didn't yeah, notice? Like, yeah. I, maybe he was just like a good guy and he really respects the art of Why crank, not? like crank yankers or something. Because I mean, he let that shit go on for a long time. I would have hung up on that motherfucker a long time ago. But like, it's only when it gets to the uh, bestiality part that he's like, all right, 
cut, cut the bit. So yeah, sorry, keep going. Don't Hold up there. Yeah, so this guy introduces himself uh, in no real way, but I guess he's like an old uh, buddy from Steven yeah. Seagal's past life. I mean, how many years of the X-Files and the Smoking Man have we had at this point where we can just introduce sort of shady government officials? What, what is the guy's, the guy's got a funny name, like Rich Little? Or like, <laughs> yeah, little, yeah, little yeah, Rich yeah, or something, or Richard, yeah. Little Richard, Little Richard, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was like, that's a weird nickname. Yeah, both like just for like a like a action crime movie, but I mean more so coming out of Steven Seagal's mouth. Yeah, Little Richard. Like, what? <laughs> that that's the nickname for your bud. Little Richard's on the phone, and uh, he's telling Seagal that he needs him on a super secret project that he can give no information about. Uh, and he's the best immunologist in the business, which is our first introduction to the fact that he's also the best immunologist, apparently. Uh, is it all? Yep. This Montana um, rancher. Yep. So he basically goes on a little bit of, uh, again, sort of flowery pat on the back sort of uh, exposition how he says, you know, oh, I'm out of that. Uh, I don't agree with any of that. You know, I promised myself I never work in the government again. Um, you guys only want to kill civilians and like you did in Korea and Vietnam and blah, blah, blah. And uh, it all sounds very great until you realize that uh, there's no way that this guy would be introduced if he wasn't going to. So it's really entirely <laughs> based on like a little setup just to sort of, again, uh, show that Steven Seagal is a good guy. He doesn't uh, create these diseases anymore. He only stops. them. Right. A little Richard hangs up the phone. But not before he uh, leaves a clue. Mm. Plastic beakers. Head scratch. A clue that uh, will pay off dividends later. Yeah, it, yeah. Really, <laughs> only said that writer in his typewriter. Exactly. Oh my god! Yeah. You guys are gonna fucking he, love this. He took Big the night off. off. <laughs> oh, plastic. Yeah, that was just like he just left his finger on the R and like, <laughs> he's like, I'm done for the night. Um, one thing. So after the scene, he, no, no, no. Little like, Richard, Lee Richard. I am little Richard. Uh, <laughs> Sweden <laughs> hangs up the phone, pans over to a, uh, an army official or a government official. Did you get him to do it? No. <laughs> well, who's the next? Uh, who's next in line? Call help him. There's no one next in line. What? Yeah. Yeah. That. That was. <laughs> Apparently, the U.S. government has literally one immunologist working for them. They ran out of. <laughs> yeah. Wait, you can't quit. Yeah. Liberal governments don't budget that sort of thing. <laughs> So after this scene, he goes and Clinton. picks up, goes and picks up his daughter. I'm a and so I'm interested to get your guys' opinion on this. I sincerely think that the chemistry between him and his daughter was some of his best acting that we've I seen thought, so far. He yeah. is legitimately charming in this dad. movie. Like, this is really, I'll say this about this movie. It was the best Seagal performance. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was really surprised. Like it was really cute. They, they like they like just generally speaking, having like adult child chemistry is pretty rare. Like it, even for great actors, when it actually does happen, it's like, oh my god, you guys! Because usually it's like, it's, like not only is it tough to get kids to act, but it's just like actors aren't used to acting with people who can't act, especially people who poop their pants. You know, this is a little off topic, but have you guys noticed in the last like five years the quality of children actors have gone up like? exponentially yes, I it's weird because there used to be sort of like that oh it's a child oh, actor no, sort of thing and then it's movie. like yeah yeah no it's i would almost argue that cutoff started later because i think it started more in the 90s uh because i can remember some really bad 80s movies that just have some atrocious child Jerry, acting. jerry Maguire changed it all that could <laughs> the be human it. head 
weighs eight pounds. But like when you think of like those like kid vehicles like Shazam, like the kid isn't the problem with Shazam. Mm. You know what I mean? Like that's what I'm thinking. Like I'm wondering if it was like almost the advent of like just a lot of movies starring kids or something. Yeah. Uh, um, Did Spy before. Kids change the game? Yeah, I've never seen I these. No idea. Spy Kids 4D. The fourth D was smell. Currently, Roger Rodriguez, Robert Rodriguez changes everything and everything. So, whoa. The uh, girl that plays his daughter just turned into like a mega babe. Oh my god! Have you seen current pictures of her? I have not. Whoa. That was not my first thought when I watched whoa. this movie. <laughs> uh, oh, Rudder. I have a hot take. Uh, so we're introduced to the fact that LQ Jones is sort of sort of around. By the way, LQ Jones is this rancher from the beginning, and he's always sort of just like hovering around their family, sort of as like a protector figure. But I propose to throw my hat in the ring that uh, after his wife died, he took on a gay lover. I, you know what? I, and I'm like, I'm not like my, I'm half joking about this. In, in Seagalology, the author also proposes the same theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? So you might yeah. be onto something. Because, like, think, like, why else is he there, right? Like, perpetually. Like, you know, it doesn't Seagal seem seems, like a friend role. Yeah, Seagal seems to be like taking care of his daughter. Okay. Also, this guy's apparently got Seagal in like a totally wildly different field of expertise. This guy's like a like a government immunologist. Like, why is he like a rancher on the side? Hmm. And the only way to me, like, putting it together in my little brain makes sense is if he takes on a gay lover who is a rancher and the rancher now just wants help on the field like why else would he i'm gonna propose all the sexual ranching duty go ahead pray for this Mm -hmm. uh ranch and lbjq what's his name lq jones lq jones got helped by steven seagal's character couldn't afford to pay back is now seinfeld-esque his butler Slash ranch hand. Paying off Mine, his... It's hotter. He, he, but he <laughs> gave him the suit, and in place of buying him lunch, he's his indentured servant. Both interesting competing theories, dare I say. Adding a lot more to this film than it is... That, that is an impressive that... read, though. Hey, come on. We got to add a little slash fiction when we can. <laughs> I like it. That's good. That's good. Yeah, like that. Come on. We got to expand the sick universe. So, I guess the militia guy is in jail. Mm-hmm. And at this point... Uh, we've had this that again, like like, is this where we meet his crony? Yeah. So I was gonna say that there, there's that kind of again that weird tonal shift where we go from this like do 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 like 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 heartwarming like beautiful cinematography. That, I guess we should also set up like this scene with like him and his daughter. Like no real plot is revealed in this at all. It's just, entirely just American cutesy ideal. Like you know, are you doing your homework, honey? Yes, daddy. Like all that kind of stuff, yeah. you know. So, and so yeah. A- after the the heartwarming uh, father daughter stuff, we get the judges infected, and all of a sudden it's like like uh the who did the psycho score Bernard Herman, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's like this like, like these like like dramatically low camera angles, and like it's like it goes from like again like this corny Indiana Jones Disney cute stuff to like uh this guy's sick and everything's dark and he's got this zombie face. And like it's such a dramatic shift, like in tone and in music and in visuals. And you're just like, what is going on? Like, did you guys notice that almost every time one of the antagonist uh, scenes started up, it always started with like a Dutch camera angle and then went to normal. So like the very first time the uh, militia are introduced, I thought it was like a dream that like a fever dream <laughs> someone was having because there's just a little. You know what you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Uh, 
Sorry, we're going to have to go back for a second, but this becomes somewhat important later. I don't know if important is the right word, but Steven Seagal in the very first scene of the movie, uh, the he comes upon a uh, like malnourished or like wounded horse, baby horse yeah. in the middle of a field. Yeah. And he brings it back to his ranch. And then in the previous scene where he's with his daughter, there's sort of an allusion to the idea that he's found the horse and he's given it some sort of special remedy and he's leaving it in the back of yeah. his barn, but he doesn't want his daughter to see it. And uh, this horse is uh, gets its mileage later, so I figured I'd bring it in now. <laughs> so yeah, the we've established that the judge has uh, gotten sick and uh, alarmingly quickly compared yeah, to everyone else. That's actually where that's where I was going with that. That like uh, the film at times seems to try and approach the theme of anti-government in like an even-handed sort of way because there's that one line that Seagal drops where he says, uh, some of these folks, the ideology is good, but some of them are assholes. And so there's this kind of the idea that like not everyone who is anti-government is bad, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But then like the government seems to work almost superhumanly quickly because they go from this guy is a little sick to the entire town being locked down within like what seems like three or four hours and i mean they do play a little fast and loose with time in this it's insane that like like that like like either they're showing that it's like a like a rash uh response to ailment or that they were already aware it was in the area or something but like yeah it's almost like like either they're showing the extreme efficiency of the government or that they're showing the government is uh like capricious and reactionary. So I read into this a little bit too much before the film proved me wrong, which is just, I thought that the, uh, the militia was doing this so that the government would come down super hard on this town and the town would then be awakened to his sort of ideology, which is look at, they're coming in over here. They're like immunizing you against things you don't even know about. You don't know if you're going to be okay or not. They're just taking over everything giving them much more credit than what the actual thought of what the militia was, which was just let's kill everybody, I think. Because that's yeah. essentially you what know, they do two scenes later. Come to think of it, like I was unable to come up with like a really d- logical plan in terms of like what his end game was, aside from just killing everybody. Yeah, I mean that being set aside, the other thing Thing with all these sort of like playing with times is it's like a double-edged sword because on one hand yeah there's a ton of plot holes with time and motivation and why does this guy want this but at the same time if i liked one thing a lot about this movie is that it was briskly paced yeah and it like yeah, 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 got yeah. to the point yeah it didn't have any like this like yeah it was a crazy ass story but it didn't have like that sort of like obligatory first act where everything seems normal and yeah. then it descends into chaos which almost always in previous cases worked to the detriment of the overall movie yeah. because it was like, oh, I have this kind of normal movie and now it can get into something with like meat yeah. on its bone. Whereas this, we just descended right into crazy. And I'm like, okay, fine. This movie, we're in Crazyville. Let's get crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, one Whereas, of the things. So, yeah, it really took a lot of uh, liberties there. So I was right on board as opposed to the other ones where I was like, why did you ruin this perfectly normal movie? <laughs> I do. I I agree with you in that it's very briskly paced, and everything that's sort of put in the movie serves a purpose later. Except for one thing that Steven Seagal says when he does find that horse earlier, and he tells the daughter, "You know, sometimes horses like to be alone when they die because they're braver than us." 
I thought that was going to come back and pay off in some way because the plastic bottles or yeah, plastic beakers does. Uh, in the first scene, she's brewing up tea for everybody to drink. That'll keep them safe. Could like it be a, a, a misty allusion to the death of his gay lover, L.Q. Jones? <laughs> uh, the, so your point about the, the pacing making it like more watchable and yeah. I guess like a, like a more enjoyable experience for you. Mm. This is a really interesting point because like the general sort of reception of this film and a lot of writing on it is that there isn't enough action and that this is, it's almost like the, the beginning of the end for yes. his sort of Hollywood yes. stardom. Okay. I want to build off this. This to me is the most interesting crux of this movie, which is that only Steven Seagal in his right mind would ever make this movie. Yeah. It's crazy, and it literally only appeals to everything Stephen Skull likes, which is patting himself on the back and junk science and like occasional ass kicking. But at the same time, it's too late for him to branch out from what he already was. Yeah. So he, at this point, is just an ass kicker. We have no real interest. Like it was like we're willing to tolerate the weirdo politics of this guy sure. because he kicks ass. This was like. This movie almost makes more sense if he didn't kick any ass. Mm. Like if he was just if there was no ass kicking involved in this, whatever, and it was just a very straight story of this sure. armed militia and this sort of brave doctor during this contagion, it would actually make more sense. But then it wouldn't get made sure. because even only Steven Seagal makes it. Sure. And if you're going to put Steven Seagal in your movie, you have to show him kicking. Sure. So yeah, it's a very interesting uh, paradox here. It's fascinating that for someone like you who you know appreciates good film more than a uh, ass kicking uh fly by the seat of your pants uh action films that the lack of action was a non-issue because from a filmmaking perspective the film craft was so much tighter than the films that might be more frenetic and so it's interesting that you're like this was so enjoyable but everyone else is like this is the fucking worst thing he's ever made because he's not kicking enough ass well, so it's funny that that even came I'll up I'll backpedal a bit and that I didn't really like this movie a whole lot just because the all this sort of uh, junk science and sort of like uh, bizarre sort of um, I don't know I guess just like stereo positive stereotyping mixed with like junk science mixed with like uh, an unclear message. It just was like a big puddle of mush to me, sort of as like movie in terms of what was it trying to tell us. Sure. Uh, but if anything that I liked about it holds true, it is that. Yeah. It is the pace. And yeah. It is the fact that we're going through all the motions and uh, yeah, the sort of ludicrous shifts in tone at least feel appropriate because we landed right in Crazyville from yeah. like scene one. Like it's it, it's it's not so much that the film is so enjoyable. It's more that it's well made to the point of it being like a a deceptive breeze through your brain, and all of a sudden you're just like this film. Just like it it hit all the points of what I need to recognize a movie, and that you're suddenly like, oh my god, it's forty five minutes into this, and I didn't realize it just because it's just like there wasn't anything that jumped out, and you're just like. Ugh. Like warning sign, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like it's, I'm not trying to say that you thought it was a brilliant film. It's more that like it was less painful than uh, yeah, maybe I, some other ones. I, I would say if I can say one thing about this movie, which isn't going to sound like a compliment, but I didn't do a lot of like lock watching with this one. <laughs> like I'm like looking at my phone and like, oh god, how much longer do I have to sit through this? 
I was like, it, it, and it helps that it was like an hour and 20 minutes. Like it wasn't it was really, really short. No. Yeah. Uh, which is weird for, uh, those sort of like, uh, widescreen epic yeah. expanse of uh the hillsides of yeah. montana Weird, movies. but welcome yeah you you assume that every movie that has a shot like that they're just like two hours <laughs> and yeah. the other thing to too is that this movie again if it wasn't steven seagal in the starring role which again it wouldn't exist if he wasn't in the starring role but if he wasn't in the starring role it probably would have been like a two maybe even two and a half hours yeah. because as we noted like this whole getting to the contagion part is wildly rushed through, and I think a more competent director and screenwriter would like want to flesh this out a bit more and make this make a bit more sense and try and sort of create a bit more emotion whichever with everyone slowly dying as opposed to when it's like a two day period and we're introduced to zero characters. You don't really give a shit the entire town is like dead by the end of this movie. Yeah, but they, as long as the three characters that we remember from previous scenes are okay. We're good. <laughs> yeah, the the characters like it's like musical chairs. Like what? Yeah. That guy's this guy's not important anymore. Yeah, exactly. So the militia guy's in jail. Yes. And the judge is infected, and uh, the army uh, has shut down Ennis, Montana. Yes. And lockdown. Mode. Uh, somehow, in the midst of uh, not only the police he- heavily guarding the police station or the the jail or uh, wherever this militia guy's being held uh also the army's there one of the militia guys somehow lies his way in to see him saying that he's his lawyer well within this like universe need some more uh very few people have like bubble jet printers yeah, and so yeah. those with bubble jet printers hold sure. all the power for sure. they can print off the credentials of anybody sure uh, which is what this guy has done. He spoofs his way in as the uh, main guy's lawyer. Lawyer, yeah. Uh, in what was a surprising amount of range. I wasn't expecting that from the guy from the first couple shots of him because most of the shots of him in the compound are him sort of looking over at the main guy, sort of like mouth half yeah. agape. He ends up being basically this like kind of supporting antagonist. The brain's in the operation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so he gets in to see him, and we find out that uh, the antidote doesn't actually work for NAM dash. Well, no, it's 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 mutated was the reason. Mutated. Which there again, dubious medical anything. I don't really know. Like, can you just say it's mutated and all of a sudden, okay, none of the vaccines work or anything? But uh, yeah, this guy also uh, like he looks like as you noted, like kind of a mouth agape hillbilly. Yeah. <laughs> He still he's seems a to genius. know. Yeah, he apparently knows quite a bit about immunization himself. Yeah. <laughs> There's that, but then he also has sort of like a turn in like a sort of a better call Saul sort of moment, just getting into the jail. I was yeah. like, oh, okay. Yeah. He seems Good. like an okay, okay guy. Good job, bootleg Donald Sutherland. <laughs> and so uh, the militia guy decides, oh shit, like uh, this plan isn't really going uh, super well. Y'all are going to have to break me out. And then there's one of the funniest scenes. Break you out, Pa. Yeah. One of the funniest scenes in, in I would say, the Seagal films we watched so far, mm-hmm. where <laughs> there's a, a truck with a stack of uh, hay bales. And then uh, it turns out that the militia guys are hiding in the hay bales and that these guns point out and uh, they shoot the three police officers. That are are guarding again this super dangerous militia guy, and also that they're uh, like uh, attacking the one area of town where 
there's no soldiers, even though we've previously seen that the the army presence in the town is like insane. That there's these guys in masks, there's soldiers everywhere. But it just so happens that uh, you know these guys can unload automatic weapons from the the, the hay bale of doom. And that, like, none of the soldiers are like, oh, yeah, some kids are setting off M80s. It's all good. You know, it's just like, like absurd. I think then uh, I think the scene either comes right before what we just went over or right after we see Seagal treating the uh, judge in the hospital. Ice. And at this point, the hospital has been totally overrun by, as you noted, like army and CIA, FBI yeah. types. Um, and Steven Seagal sort of does a very pat diagnosis of what's going on with this guy and uh then the guy just like starts violently like convulsing and just drops dead on the operating table or in his hospital bed and it's at this point the guy on the phone does he come in or does steven Seagal call him on the phone uh, so there's a sheriff who's in the room who also passes over uh, and, over, yeah, yeah and this dies. is the glass he's like uh, uh, Edison bulb over his head, glass yeah. speakers, and he calls yeah. him up. He's like, "I think I got your bug." Yeah, he does call him. Okay, yeah. So he calls this guy, and the, and the uh, banana soldiers from Adventure Time Command. They're like, "Wee wee." <laughs> yeah, so he cops to he cops to it immediately, essentially, and he says, "Okay, you figured out what happened. Awful contagion." And uh, then do they just sort of have an exchange about how to go about curing it, or what exactly? No, gets- they're basically like. He's like, oh, like now I know where it is. I'm gonna send in the cavalry, and then they they sh- they shut down the town. And okay. It's like a ten mile perimeter. Blah 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 blah. Uh, where do we go from here? Now we go to so they, the militia they guys. They've broken them out of prison, and the militia guys now come to the hospital because I guess this is where all the medical minds would be. Yeah. This Why is, did they go there exactly? The, I'm assuming the militia goes there because they're assuming the government has another antidote to it. Yeah, this is a, pretty ballsy move, by the way. This like yeah. 30 person militia going up against the army and FBI. That is, is exactly what I was gonna say. Like the idea, like you don't have to be, you know, a military tactician to think that like a bunch of hillbilly, like like what we'll say 50 at the most. At the most. At the most. That, like, they're going to be able to completely, like, decimate or control what looks like hundreds of soldiers with automatic weapons? Like, it just seems unlikely, especially when, like, they're already in the hospital. Like, they're already in, you know, a hard target. And so it's like... And they're soldiers and not hillbillies playing militia. walk in? Well, they can be both. True. Yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, like, that's, that's a big question. Like, I mean, it it, a question of like, and I mean, like, maybe this is why they had to include that neo-Nazi thing, because like, uh, if they're so skilled that they're going to overrun the army, maybe they're going to win some audience members over. And they're going to be like, oh, like they're, they're just bulldozing, uh, these, you know, these chumps, GI Joe chumps. And that like, maybe these guys are like actually kind of cool. And so maybe they need to, to further demonize them because they demonstrate this kind of like alpha level power where they just like, you know, make the army look like a bunch of idiots. My only problem is if I've ever looked at a picture of Gayard Sertain and that bootleg Donald Sutherland guy, I don't think cool was the first thing that came to mind. They yeah. all looked like a bunch of like backwash freaks. So, I mean, I don't know. That really is what they were going for. But again, I think economy of time, maybe let's just give them that. 
uh, liberal plot development. <laughs> um, so it's at this point that they've they've killed a bunch of people, uh, and now they're sort of pressuring the few doctors who they flew in. Are they government doctors, or are they just the doctors at the local hospital? Government doctors, because yeah. for a while they were... Because the whole purpose of the... Uh, when you've got something that's as bad as what's in the town, you don't use uh, glass beakers because they could cut open. You're going to cut your monkeys. You're going to cut your monkeys. Uh, yeah. That's what my uh, ex-girlfriend so, said. <laughs> so there's a, there's, there's a, there's basically a little exchange of them trying to threaten these government doctors to give them this antidote. And this is where they go. It's mutated. We don't have an antidote. And then someone just sort of out of the blue, I think it was the second in command, says, there's one person who's not infected and uh, we need to find out who that is. And they scan through this classic like CSI first season database of names and they've narrowed it down. And you'll never guess who it was. Steven Seagal's daughter. So, of course, at this point, the militia is very, very interested in finding the daughter. And this brings us to, I guess, Steven Seagal's sort of... uh, First, thugs out and everyone. Yeah, first big fight sequence. This isn't his big thugging out. This is the second largest thing. Micro out. thug. Micro thug. Yeah. I uh, while I was watching this fight sequence, all I could think about is, can you imagine if like this was more shot as a thriller and a better director and a better actor was doing it? And this whole escape from the hospital thing could have been so much cooler, so much more suspenseful than. Uh, what ends up happening, which is Seagal wraps a blanket over his daughter's head so that because the the one the one piece of information all the militiamen have about his daughter so wait, is that hold she's on. got long hold on. black hair. I think we're jumping ahead because they first escape the hospital through a more simpler way. They get back to the house and then the militia guys bring them back to the hospital. Oh, that's way later. No, am I wrong? Okay, so hold on. We're skipping over one of the best parts right. where what, what, when we, we first learn that, like, once they figure out that uh, the audience figures out that uh, Seagal's daughter is in danger, Seagal has to go into beast mode. And so... Yeah, this uh, is what I'm thinking. The about. old lady gives him the knife that he <laughs> refused to take. So if he had taken the knife and maybe left it somewhere else, he wouldn't have had it. Again, uh, the, the, obviously the screenwriter got to the cream his jeans over that one. And so, uh, one of, one of the funniest, I think, Seagal action scenes that we've seen thus far is he punches a guy in the stomach and sends him flying through a door. Yeah. And I yeah. mean, like, when you look at it, the door uh, is like plywood would be a liberal explanation <laughs> of it. It's like a like a graham cracker covered in paint, maybe. Like it, yeah. it, it kind of like breaks before the guy falls yeah, through. It looks it. like a pretty flimsy door. So no, he, but like I'm, I must, I'm, I feel like I'm misremembering this. But there's a scene where they're back at his house, and the girl happens upon the horse. Oh wait, wait, no, and no, then a, a militia that's guy. That's way at the, the yeah. end of the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he he punches a bunch of dudes, uh, finds his daughter. Uh, he's wrapping her in a blanket, and at first I thought it was just to comfort her, but little did I know he proceeds to do a jumping front roll. <laughs> Through like a 15-foot-wide yeah. glass window. Of course, safety glass. And it just jumps through, and it just turns into uh, harmless little cubes. And then uh, LQ Jones picks him up and drives off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, what took you so long? Is his 
Yeah, classic line to deliver to a terrified so, child. So they get home, and uh, Segal is uh, working on his, his DARPA ID. And he tells his daughter his, to gear up, because yeah. uh, you know how to fix up a horse, don't you? Yes, Daddy. Do you know how to hurry? Yeah, Dad. And so here's a, <laughs> oh, scene, that, here's a scene that you're You guys are making of. it sound sick. Here's a scene you were thinking of. So in this scene, when they first go back to the house, uh, she is going... Uh, into the stable, and she doesn't know that the the what the what's a baby horse called the yeah. foal foal okay she doesn't know that it's alive because he's been keeping it secret mm. so she's walking and she hears a rustling oh, and so yeah. we're kind of worried and there's this kind of suspenseful sort of thing and then she sees that the horse is live oh, and everything's okay. cool yeah uh and then we'll save the rest for later all right and so. Uh, then like one of the, the scene that you had alert, uh, uh, um, alluded to earlier uh, with uh, LQ Jones mm-hmm. is he is, is he's getting ready for trouble. And so he picks up uh, this this old ass uh, lever action uh, Winchester rifle. Yeah, it looked like something of the Civil <laughs> yeah. War. And then and then looks over and there's one of those like a uh, like zooms into the you see uh, these horizon. yeah you see the militiamen yeah, coming over the hill and so he puts down the lever action rifle and then picks up a a, a ba a browning automatic rifle this like a world fully war automatic II, weapon yeah, though it, like a classic kind of world war ii weapon which i'm assuming for gun nets or even americans they would immediately acknowledge as like oh he's a he's a veteran because that was like like the classic like world war ii gun this dude's a gay veteran yeah. married yes. to that, illegally Trump? married mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I didn't to say they're American herbologist. Yeah. yeah, and so uh, yeah, LQ it's a new Jones, normal. LQ Jones goes over to 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 take care of business, and so there's a convoy coming. And this scene, like when I watched this scene, I was like, man, this is really good. And then when I looked up the director and I saw that he did two Mad Max films, I was like, this makes sense because there's a scene where there's a two pickup trucks and he throws a bundle of dynamite. And there's this one scene where the truck is flipping over and the camera is mounted to the flipping truck. And this guy is kind of like trying to hold on to the pickup truck as it's falling through the air. And it's kind of like a shot, basically, a, I guess like a point of view shot from the pickup truck. And then he gets crushed by the truck. And I was like, this is pretty virtuosic stuff. Like this is like, like almost like Michael Bay type stuff. So let's there's now... definitely a lot of personality to this film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, also, like right after that, you get like a really nice sort of overhead shot of LBJ oh, yeah. sort of going yeah. through, like uh, making sure everybody's dead and then yeah. dancing. Yeah. Uh, now, intercut with this, uh, we would be remiss if we did not talk about uh, Steven Seagal's bizarre uh, computer Photoshop program. Yes. Uh, that he has somehow, this is 1997 or 8, and he has this uh, state of the art for that period, uh, like identification forgery software <laughs> in a Montana ranch, yeah. which on top of that is clearly making like the chintziest looking badge yeah. to pass him through whatever agency yeah. he needs to it, get through. It, it, it's I've wild that in like the late 1990s, if you wanted to show that someone had a really cutting edge computer, they had a trackball. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah he was that, just that like, was the thing. Yeah. It's just like if you have a mouse, you're a fucking chump. Yeah, he was if like you got a fondling this shit, computer this to make it work. Yeah, yeah. He was you're, like, you're a yeah. hacker. You got a trackable. Yeah, and it had that like classic like late nineties yeah, stuff where yeah. it's like if you just wanted to, to remove the background, 
who just clicked the remove yeah, background the button. Remove background button. <laughs> Congratulations, you have gotten Adobe this engineers. To do it like, yeah, so uh, <laughs> he creates this uh, very fine piece of forged badgery yeah. uh, from his home uh, computer. Yeah. And then, um, like, the, yeah. the fact that you see, like, it's like, like it's procedural in the sense of showing sixty-five uh, percent of the procedure, namely that, like, he prints it off, but like. There's no laminating machine. No. There's nothing like he, he has a magnetic pass to get into the thing. How did he get that? It's just like 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 that's the shit that, you know, would really be next level. Yeah. Every motherfucker has a printer. Everyone has a computer. Show me how he's making this plastic ID card. Show me how he's laminating it. You know, like, I mean, that's like, I don't know. One would assume like any sure. quality Montana ranch, a laminator would be in the house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, no, no disrespect to the state of Montana. No. But we digress. So they're now, uh, LQ Jones is dancing over this heap of corpses he just killed. Uh, and the little girl uh, is met by, his, met by her father. And he goes, oh, look at you, like efficiently packing these horses. And they got their three horses ready. They're ready to ride. Uh, they're walking up. See LQ Jones. And there's, uh, there's one last straggler of his pile of corpses that yep. is still alive. And. He gets little LQ right through the heart. He gets LQ'd. Yeah. And the, the great love story of this movie is torn yeah. asunder. You know what I did appreciate? What did that, you appreciate? Like, that Seagal was on horseback with this old-ass lever-action rifle, and that he was probably, like, 60, 70 yards away. I appreciate it took him two shots. <laughs> like, Fair enough. If he smoked him with one shot, like, mm. I mean, that's impossible. From you know? Montana, doctor? <laughs> But I mean, like, like it's just like he might as well have thrown a knife a hundred yards to kill him. Like it would be about as realistic. So it's like that. That I appreciated that little detail. It, he could have used the lady's knife, but then the director would have passed out from <laughs> orgasm. So, <laughs> so we find out they're going to go. I am see. drained. He still has the knife. Yes. So we, uh, we were going. Uh, we were sort of alluded to earlier. They're going to see Grandpa. Um, now there's obviously been some debate as to whether or not grandpa is just the grandpa of the daughter in terms of heritage, but at also, so they're, they're riding to this indiscriminate location, which can't be that far off. But then we hard cut to like, uh, like them getting a burial ready. And I didn't notice, but somehow they had like lugged LQ's corpse like this entire way. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, one thing that we skipped over that mm. I thought was hilarious, yeah, uh, that fits into this uh, ongoing theme of like a pseudoscience or just, just straight up uh, erroneous shit is the the militia guys. They uh, have figured out that for whatever reason, uh, his daughter's his daughter is I- immune to uh, this, this contagion, this virus, and so that they they need her blood. And the militia leader. <laughs> drops a line and he says if you shoot her plug up the hole because we need her blood and it's like yeah i mean isn't it just like this Get person is later. valuable don't gun them <laughs> down it's like it's also the idea is if you need the blood like get there at some point like she's empty like, <laughs> like, it's just like yeah no, like, no, like, no. Yeah. It's like it's like uh, the, the I must have missed that point in like paramedic training or it's like this person's dying. Stick a finger in there. Yeah. It's just like like plug up the hole. Yeah. How about just don't gun down the little girl? Like, it's just like, like that's Well, it. later on in the film it's confirmed that he's a Merlot lover, so maybe he was thinking like with a cork. Yo. There you go. 
Shouts out Paul Giamatti. All right. <laughs> uh, so we meet uh, the family uh, of Seagal. Yeah. Maybe. The family and, or the extended family of Seagal. Yeah. And they're going to basically bury this uh, love man, L.Q. Jones. And I don't know if a Did film you just call him a love man? A loved man. <laughs> and uh, in this scene... I don't know if musical scores can be racist. Oh, but I, I'm glad you said that. This one they, was yeah, awful. Like they, it was. Yeah, they oh, were just like, oh my god! They, oh. The the guy who did the score. He, no, I, I'll say it. Musical scores can be racist, and this was incredibly he, racist. He held back for about four seconds before it was like, "Hey, yeah, yeah." It's yeah, yeah. like, "All right, we get it." They're and then it went on for like. 30 seconds oh, yeah. and like they, had, they started having a little bit of tribal drumming in there oh, yeah. and it, yeah it was yeah it was, it was oh very, boy and then yeah. it just gets worse and worse where yeah. they figure out that mm. uh perhaps uh natives are immune to the virus and then the uh i guess it would be his sister sister and sister says, or sister-in-law well, yeah maybe it is payback for smallpox. Hey! <laughs> yeah. Don't joke about this. But yeah, you're probably right. Wild stuff. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it really got into some really, really troublesome territory with that stuff getting in. And then on top of that, um, it's also revealed that the sister is, uh, where, what is, what is her role in the movie at that point? She seems to be able to competently assist him as a oh, medical assistant. She has. Yeah. She's some like lab going experience. to school for it. Yeah. yeah. So naturally, there's the sort of person you want to bring to try and cure this uncurable disease. Yeah. Notwithstanding, they uh, they have a little uh, sort of scene where they catch up, and they're off riding again to find a secret government compound in the hills not far from them, apparently, <laughs> conveniently, yeah. so that they can both go to work on a cure. Establishing that Seagal at one point commuted to work, probably on horseback. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, let's be real. The horses were kind of just an excuse to have some horseback riding in them. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, to each his own. So they uh, they ride around and uh, they leave his child and his father out picking garb, picking stuff in the picking garden, flowers, and which is what they'll be doing when they come back. Because again, this this whole yes. film's a little loose with time, a little loose with time. And uh, the the uh, the little girl says something to the grandpa about like you know these flowers are this flower and they will He's help. Like, Do you remember this one? She's like, it's mm-hmm. called red medicine. <laughs> yeah, that's our red. secret. Yeah, and then he picks up another flower, and he's like, do you remember this one? And she says something like, that's her secret, which, yeah, I mean, sure. Again, <laughs> just another just awkward-ass scene of just uh, white people going a little too far into this. Uh, but they go uh, while they're picking their flowers or whatnot. Uh, the uh, sister-in-law and Seagal find the secret DARPA compound. Found the secret DARPA compound. The hill she's known for years, she's never known it's there, despite it being... Uh, an above ground yeah. structure. Fifteen minutes away, there is uh, a cordoned off barbed wire area with CCTV cameras and a mysterious, like, uh, lost esque hatch into nowhere. I've known these hills all my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, another funny thing about that the, the the secret DARPA compound. Did you notice that every soldier in the compound 
was like five foot eight and like 150 pounds, thereby making Seagal look like basically their father. Like he just yeah. towered up. They all look like a little kid. So it's going to have low ceilings. Maybe. <laughs> I, I thought it was clearly like an alpha beta sort of like, here comes daddy to help with all your <laughs> shits. You Fair know? enough. Someone screwed up with the casting call. Yeah, so uh, they arrive at this uh, compound and uh, they they ring the bell <laughs> and uh, and they said, this is a restricted area, blah, blah, blah. And Steven Seagal uses his witticism to get himself into the bunker. And at that point, we're revealed to this uh, kind of like little Charlie Day looking motherfucker who kind of goes like, uh, you know, this is a restricted area. I could shoot you for being here. And, and he's, I don't want to hurt you. And he does this thing that he's done in, I think, about three movies where... Uh, they're all weapons drawn. He's he then uh, sort of outfoxes them and knocks a few of them down yeah. and kicks their asses. But no one shoots him. And, yeah, no one yeah. shoots him. And then he obtains a gun, and then he says, "Everybody, drop all their weapons. Lower the, their weapons." The, the other they all lower, six people. Yeah, the like, other six oh, people shit. all lower their yeah. weapons, and then he goes, "I don't want to hurt you." And then immediately gives up the drop he had by dropping his gun. Like that he he's done that three times and he, every single time it's yeah. just it comes off as ridiculous, and uh, yeah he did an exit wounds and I think above the law and uh, yeah we'll get the drop on someone have their weapon and then relinquish the weapon immediately with, to with, indicate that he's a good guy yeah. with the assumption that he's mind fucked them to such a degree that handing them a loaded weapon there's no point in time where they're gonna be like oh sweet I got the gun now I get to shoot you. Yeah, no. Uh, and then he goes down to his office and knows the code, so proving that he did work there at some point. Yeah. Punches it in, gets in, and gets to work on trying to find a cure, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And this is like the next 10 or 15 minutes of the film as uh, all the guys in the DARPA base are slowly dying off. They're still trying to find a cure. Nobody, there's, they aren't calling a lot of attention to the fact that the two of them aren't getting sick. Yes. And now, here's a question for you. How long were they supposed to be down there for? Well, this is like the thing. a week or two days? It's, it's another one of those things where, like, the, the movie plays a lot with time because, yes, they've had time to sort of fold up all the blankets and things like that for all five or six members of the people who have died except for the last one. But then when they go back to the ranch the daughter and the grandfather are in the exact same position that they left them in, just picking flowers in the garden. <laughs> so it makes you think that they were only down there for like two hours or something like that. But, you know, seven people died and one guy was on the verge of death and then miraculously came back to the point where he could stand outside if he was wearing kind of a dorky scarf. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, it's tough to tell. It's enough that uh, the main baddies are now back at their established sort of camp. How long? Well, Okay. At the beginning of the film, they say most people won't last a day, maybe two. I mean, like, like it's frightfully illogical, but within the context of the film, that sounds that sounds. Mm -hmm. like, I mean, like, yeah, like realistically, it should have been much longer. But I mean, like, yeah, it's like in terms of like the editing and the storytelling, yeah. two days seems about right. And then it leads to one of my favorite shots in the film, where. <laughs> they <laughs> They they've caught on that it might be these uh might be wildflowers wildflowers so they start brewing tea in beakers. Yes, <laughs> I thought that was very funny. Like <laughs> they're just brewing tea, but they do it in like a very medical way, and the water's yeah. bubbling up. They do it so that they get the red water to release and blah blah blah. Like 
I'm no scientist, but the scene of them drawing out uh, how they're going to synthesize an antitoxin. Ah, again, uh, maybe I'm completely off and I'm just like an ignorant idiot, but that seemed insane. I established my position before, which is that I'm glad I knew nothing about medicine because it all felt off, but I cannot confirm or deny it. And for the purposes of this movie, I'm happy to be able to deny it all sure. of it. So, here's a funny idea that I had. Um, I can't help but draw some comparisons between this whole uh, white man's synthetic medicine isn't working, let's look somewhere else theme to uh, Aronofsky's film The Fountain, where they're trying to cure cancer and they look towards this uh, mysterious tree in the Amazon that turns out to be the tree of life. Did he see uh, the Patriot and maybe think of this film? Who knows? I think the problem with with the Patriot is that uh, the whole flowers cure is uh, A, uh, the flowers are indiscriminate, <laughs> which is that... They just pick a bunch of fucking flowers. They don't yeah, even give a specific see, type of flower. This is a really good point because when they're when the grandfather and the and the granddaughter are picking flowers, there's one specific one that they say red medicine. But then that turns into wild flowers, and then later on in the film, you just see soldiers, yeah, just randomly grabbing yeah. handfuls of every flower on the planet, and yeah. just like, okay, like that to me was the most ludicrous stretch of this whole medical pretense which is that I can understand maybe for this specific medicine a specific flower cure not just picking a field full of random flowers any wild flower is going to like be be so naturopathically powerful that it is going to completely neutralize this super secret CIA virus that they've created in the lab yeah like it's like it this is kind of one of those things where it's like this is one of those moments that undermine an entire thing where it's like someone saw this movie and once they saw this they're like fuck this yeah i like <laughs> any like naturopath holistic whatever whatever bullshit because it's like they see something like this and they're just like yeah. this, this is like uh kind of like a metaphor yeah, it's, for all of it it's almost so ludicrous it invalidates the point it's trying to make yeah which yeah. is funny because like this seems like an integral part of Segal's ideology, but yeah. his his own film, and he fucked it up, kind of undermined. Yeah, but also, I mean, this is not the first case of this. It's right, 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 like, right. The Glimmer Man is a classic example where he's got the he wants to uh, sort of promote the idea of Eastern medicine, right? But then he has a whole running joke about ox penis. Like it's like he wants to have his cake and Good eat reference. it. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. Like he wants to like say this stuff is great. But he doesn't actually want to do any of the bullshit yep. research or knowledge of native medicines that would go into making this claim. So he instead allows himself to just divert into just this ludicrous uh, idea of what this medicine could be. And in that sense, then invalidating everything that he set it to do in the first place. Yep. Other interesting note about the sort of discovery of the cure disease is uh, the guy who was getting lippy with him when he was first going down. He's the last survivor. And he gets injected with the medicine. And it's like, I was once the guy who was reaming you out, and now you've saved my life. Again, reinforcing this idea of Seagal's Jesus. He's taken this, like, mm. 
totally asshole guy in this one scene that we're giving him. Yeah. The guy who was ready to shoot and arrest yeah. him when he infiltrated his base and has now cured him of this hideous disease and he is the one lone survivor. So again, a little heavy-handed. It's kind of like a, a bar rescue episode where John Taffer comes in and he's shitting on everyone. Preach, then, brother. Yeah, and then the owner is like, fuck you. But at the end, that Taffer has gamed him so fucking hard that this guy who was going to punch his face in is giving him like a tearful hug. And it's like, you know, in a Seagal film, you're like, this doesn't happen. But then you watch Bar Rescue and you're like, it's impossible to punch uh, Taffer in the face because he's just a giant thumb. <laughs> yeah. They well, just, you know, we've we've established the high quality of Steven Seagal movie, which is reality TV show we're better for a moment. <laughs> so anywho, they cure the disease with uh asterix wildflowers asterix and they were t- Weirdly enough, they cure it with red medicine and not our secret. Yeah. Anyways, let's move Wait, it along. Wait, hold on. Can we just I want to clarify this. When they said red medicine, were they referring to the red flower or were they referring to just a racist way of referring to like Native American medicine? The flower in question was red, but then the people who acknowledge it as medicine were also red. So it could be a little racist. I think it was just the color of it because it right. was a very, very deep red. Any hue. So any hue. Hey, so it, it, in the, an act of... Uh, brilliant uh military tactics uh Segal returns to his home uh even though he's well aware that an armed militia is looking for him and so when his daughter goes back to check on the uh what foal foal yep. uh who previously tricked us in a scene where we thought something bad was going to happen nothing to happen but this time she goes and checks on the foal and omg she gets grabbed of course. So the two of them are transported back to the militia's uh, main camp. That we saw in the start of the film. Uh, the daughter is taken downstairs into the basement. Yep. Seagal is invited in for a glass of Merlot. Yes. In uh, the cheapest looking wine glasses you've ever seen. Oh my God, that, yeah. That white spiral around the end. Also, again, further confusing the message as to what exactly is this villain... Supposed to be standing for. So just to recap, he's a like a pro, like super, super Republican interpretation of the of the uh, like Declaration of Independence. Well, this is where he sort of spells out what he's trying to say. I guess like a libertarian. He's yeah. So he's a libertarian gun nut who runs his own backwater militia in a Republican state who likes fine wine and. Uh, <laughs> And apparently, sort of, is a highfalutin culture type. To which the point he gets so confusing that Segal you just described Ben Franklin, but <laughs> it gets so confusing that Segal himself references to it. Which and he goes like, "I wouldn't think a good old boy like you would like red wine." Yeah. And he just sort of goes like, "Well, I'm just crazy like that, I guess." And yeah, I just it was a really confusing. He calls himself a gentleman farmer. Yeah. Like he was a mishmash kind of villain guy, and I agree kind of with what Riley was saying before, where you can't really tell if it's like pro liberal or pro Republican or what the stance is really in the end. But yeah, he he kind of invites him to have this tete a tete over um, the current state of things. His vantage point being saying, "We have your daughter," and him saying, "I have sure." And uh, what were the specifics of that speech? Does anyone kind of remember their back and forth and 
bit better detail. Well, the guy was surprised that Seagal had the cure. Yeah. Like, he just captured them because they captured him because the girl's blood would be. And so, uh, one of the better Seagal kills comes out of the uh, wine drinking scene. Yeah, take notes, Chris Nolan. Oh, wait, you already did. he, He breaks off the... What's the top part of like the goblet part? Yeah, I guess. And so he uses the the stem of the wine glass as like an ice pick, which I guess could work. They kind of did a similar thing in like the Godfather Part Three, where they killed a guy with a pencil to his temple. Oh no, wasn't it glasses? He at the start he takes his glasses off and stabs him with glasses. Yeah, I mean, the- I'm just trying to think if like if glass could go through a human skull. I mean, it's a great scene either way. It seemed like the more the implication was that it was going right for, what's the name of the sort of temple? Yeah, it was like going right for the temple, and he was hoping for like a big blood spray a la GSP mm-hmm. in that one scene. <laughs> so like, I think the almost implication was either it hit the temple and he's dead, or it went just right to his brain, which yeah. again, I'll get through Skull. Uh, nevertheless, this then kind of gives us our big uh, Steven Seagal action sequence for lack of a better term you know it's funny i've noticed that in seagal films he likes that particular handgun a 1911 so much he will give it to the bad guys just so he can steal it and so he can start using it and that his love of a certain type of sidearm will basically like alter the scripts in his films and that he will actually give characters the gun that he wants to use just so he can work into the film, if he has to take a gun, it's gonna be the gun I like. Mm, like it's kind of like, it's kind of like if it was like like Fast and Furious, but Paul Walker only like Honda Civics, and he's like every car on the street's gonna be a Honda Civic. <laughs> it's like yeah. every scene is gonna be based around a Honda Civic. So, so we should mention something else that was kind of important that we kind of left out, which is we're kind of uh, alluding to Seagal's influence on this film a lot more than we have in others. This is the only film that I believe in his entire sort of catalog of work where he is actually the production company of the movie. Very good. Very good point. So I feel like almost this feels the most Seagal-y, whatever that means, than anything else I've seen. And I don't think it's convenience that's the only one that he had a production company for. And the fact that it was made for about $25 million and went straight to video probably is a pretty good indicator as why they didn't follow through with the other two guaranteed projects on a three-year deal. (laughs) This is an interesting point. Like, I think I would disagree. It's, like, bewildering how Sagali so many of the films that we watched are, despite the fact that he doesn't have a writing credit, he doesn't have a production credit. Like, it's weird how this guy who, you know, like, in the early 90s, you know, when it was like uh, above the law, hard to kill, mark for that stuff like that, under siege. When he was like, you know, he was never like a who's who who's like a like a huge like he was never Tom Cruise, you know, nothing mm-hmm. even close to that. But I mean, he was a bigger action star. But it's weird how this guy who was kind of like, you know, I maybe like a Jean Claude Van Damme it would be comparable. Like, I mean, I can't think of a single Jean Claude Van Damme film where like there's a Van Damme influence. Like, how how are so many of this guy's films, even though on it seems like he has no influence why is it all like tying into his interests and his conspiracy things and his uh erroneous politics like it's very strange so i mean if we were to kind of go back to above the law 
he gets his big break by being sort of an, an in through a powerful agent. And uh, he's kind of given this image of a big star vehicle. And I mean, before he even started, he had this big sort of air of pomposity. And I think it's just his, it must just be his personality type where. That like when he's on set. He must be very bullheaded. And the reason why this one stands out to me in particular, so we go to something like Above the Law, right? That movie, it's like kind of got this Clint Eastwood reject thing going on. But then there's these little infusions of things that make it seem like Steven Seagal was tailor-made for it. Whereas this, in construction from beginning to end, everything just reeks of like Seagal's okay. like image of what he wants to make himself out as, as a vehicle. Uh, to the point that I would argue that if I almost feel like he only was an action star in this movie for the like uh, the guaranteed parts of his contract. We're like, we're not making this movie with you unless you do do action sequences. Oh, sure, 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 sure. Like, I feel like Seagal, if he if wasn't he contractually druthers. obligated to do so, would make this movie without himself fighting it. Yeah. No, I think it's a fair point. Because, I mean, like, I think you, I think it's like 40-something minutes before he throws a punch. Yeah. Which is like, not... Uh, the action star formula. And the fights feel the most ham-fisted and shoehorned in of any sure, scenes sure. in the oh, movie. Yeah. Like, he fights the, the militia guys twice and then has a little bit of a tete-a-tete with the... Yeah, and just arm. shoots them when it's done. Yeah, and then has, uh, uh, you know, a little run-in with the army guys in the underground bunker or whatever. Uh, but aside from that, you know, there's nothing really to fight in that sort of way in this movie. Yeah, I think that when you're uh, someone who has the opportunity to production company really felt like he really sort of clenched his fist around this movie. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, the ending, I thought, was a great example of a cinematographer turned directors. I was thinking that. Inner exactly. cinematographer getting the better of them. Because it's like, how best are we going to uh, deliver this was my exact the- <laughs> projecting my thought into your brain yeah. uh, uh, how best are we going to uh, deliver the antitoxin of this uh, virus and then that- and then thought number two how do we make this distribution of this virus the most like aesthetically colored yeah. absurd experience and of course that naturally would be to Drop them yeah. from, yeah. drop flower petals from helicopters. You, you, you keep on referencing, like, I'm glad I don't know anything about science. Uh, I hate this movie. But I this mean, part like, is not even, yeah, this you, is beyond science. You don't have to be a scientist to think like, that, like, you know, what is the person going to do? There's, you don't drop the raw ingredients of your elixir onto yeah, people exactly. and just say, cure yourselves with it. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got diabetes. And it's all of a sudden from, uh, you know, a B-52, they're going to drop a bunch of powder on the ground. You're going to sweep it up with uh, all the dog shit particles and the dust and the boogers from the little kids and stuff on the ground. And then, oh, yeah, just boil it. Oh, yeah, there we go. That's how medicine works. But even before that, the sort of most pacifisty sort of let's make a statement about culture yep. here scene okay. of the film. You're right. Is Seagal has communicated to the army what the uh, what the cure is. And it's just the next scene is a whole bunch of guys fully decked out in hazmat suits but like army hazmat suits 
clamoring through a field, collecting flowers like it was a broken social scene music video. It yeah, was that, crazy. That, that actually scene was like... It was absurdist. I, I felt like, yeah, it, it was a photographic and compositional misstep because it's like, like you didn't really get a sense of the, the, the epic undertaking that was happening because like, you know, it's like, like throughout the film, we've seen these like, like, you know, uh, two, three, five, like anamorphic, like huge vistas. But then for this scene, I think like the most, the, 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 like on screen at one time, there's maybe 30 soldiers. Like, I mean, it should have been a massive shot, like this super wide shot of just like 200 guys showing that like, we're we're on this and the army's coming to say that instead it's just like you know it's basically like a like a high school gym class see i would go the opposite way and say this is just the most ridiculous thing because it's like a first year art students project like uh guys i just thought of something what if one we ended apartheid tonight woo did that too what if we just paid our soldiers to pick flowers how many wars would we stop yeah oh my god and i i guess it, another thing is that like like kind of riffing on this idea about like uh, the artistry in the cinematography kind of superseding logic and narrative. Why do they still have their sinister hazmat suits on? I was going to say the <laughs> thing that I actually really liked about that is that before I watched it, I watched the trailer and then the trailer they have it as like uh, the menace is coming and they use that shot to like signify that like some sort of awful malicious <laughs> descending on the city, uh, which again, Fun little thing about movie magic, right? But also, um, all yeah, trailers are garbage. Yeah, it was it to me. It does kind of bring more to that sort of first year art student sort of mm. thing, where you have them in the suit specifically to have that soup certain level of like Hodorowski weirdness that from that one film class you watch sort of element to it. And yeah, it really did come off as just like, give me a fucking break. <laughs> okay, so flowers descend from the sky from helicopters. It, I mean, how are they delivering it other than like they're shooting at little flower missiles or something like that? No we real other way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Indiscriminate flowers again, we have to know, like just petals of flowers that are randomly picked. Yeah. And this scene goes on for a really long time. Well, because we have to get a shot of who else but uh, little Sebastian, the tiny horse that was saved at the beginning Sebastian? of the film. <laughs> no, that's a Parks and Rec reference. Oh. But uh, saved at the beginning of the film, brought through, and the little girl runs up and goes, oh, no. oh, my God. And you get introduced by a couple of the patients at the doctor's office who are almost going to die, but now they're going to be okay. Yep. And they have this weird interchange about how they saved their lives. Well, they still haven't actually taken the vaccine <laughs> and they're still actually technically slowly dying, which is weird. And uh, yeah, and then they're all just sort of parading through the streets. There's a little baby horse for extra cute factor. And then the sister-in-law and grandfather have a weird little line exchange. Where she said, I like, I didn't expect, I bet you didn't expect to be in town. I was like, this, this is why I don't come to town. Yeah. Like, I know grandpa. And uh, Obviously, like, it begs the question of, like, they're aware that there is this super lethal, but 200, 200 times worse than anthrax, uh, contagion outbreak in the town. Now's a good time to uh, take a stroll. But what does that even mean? What does that even mean? Like, he sees flowers falling from the sky. Says, this is why I don't come to town. I, I think it was a reference to, like, the, the white man's fucking up their shit as always. 
It's like, I like yeah. this other why I live in the hills. That all through this movie, this guy has played this Native American grandfather is just a man who hates joy. Yeah. That I can get behind because I feel like if you're like a, a septuagenarian Native person living in America, <laughs> you probably hate hate everything that country stands for. Anyways, uh, so that scene just goes on and on and on. And, uh, and is there anything before we cut to like final credits? Nope. What did you guys think? Let's Oy. get well, to this. All right. Uh, I'll let's get let's get your opinion first, just because I feel like you're gonna be sort of the middle ground between the two of us. I love I this have, movie. Okay. I don't. I don't love this movie, but in terms you're of using the Roger Ebert scale, Roger Ebert would flexibly scale things. So you'd have like uh, a bona fide amazing movie, but then uh, a good movie if the movie when it sets out is just meant to just sort of like waste your time in terms of Seagal's canon that we've watched so far. This was my favorite. It was very briskly paced. There was very little action. There's a lot of everything that was said was sort of plot relevant, except for at the beginning where he was making eggs or a half omelet or something like that. Didn't really enjoy that part. Fuck. We missed that scene. <laughs> We're not going back. Um, a, like it, it was just, it was taut. It was easy. It was, uh, I, I, I will admit that, uh, I have watched this film once before in, I think it was 1999 or 2000 when the Patriot, the Mel Gibson movie had just come out in theaters and I was over at a sleepover and the guy's dad came home with a blockbuster video saying, Hey, I was, I was able to get like, so the Patriot had been in theaters for two weeks and the guy said, and the guy's dad was like, Hey, managed to rent the Patriot at Blockbuster. And we were all so Managed to rent it. So I watched through literally all of the Patriot the first time, the Steven Seagal Patriot movie, thinking that it was the Mel Gibson film and that Mel Gibson's Ah. The Patriot was a time-traveling movie. We just hadn't hit the part where they go back in time yet. I watched the whole movie like that. I'll say, okay, I would rank it as probably... My second favorite behind Exit Wounds. Still not great. Uh, briskly paced, definitely. Looked pretty good, definitely. Uh, but again, it it's just... It, it took so many gigantic leaps uh, in both construction and uh, appropriate themes that it really kind of just comes across as another sort of washing machine movie where, like, you don't really... Everything's all mixed up and... Nothing really sort of makes any logical sense, but at the same time, I'll use my flexible scale, you know, suspend my Steven Seagal <laughs> disbelief scale. I don't know. I give it a maybe around like a four out of out of ten sort of deal, which, you know, sounds harsh, but also keep in mind that the high end for me at this point has been like five and a half. So, you know, <laughs> we're we're building. Uh I will also say that for a movie that was direct to video. Uh, total flop, and every single review that I read about it was like, this movie's garbage. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. Like, this entire thing let me have to be like, oh god, this must be like, terif- terrible, just scraping the bottom of the barrel type stuff. Uh, yeah, it wasn't the best in terms of logical thinking, and uh, the message it was trying to get across, but you know what? It was competently made, looked okay, acted okay, uh, a lot of things okay. So, yeah, I'll give it like, just below average. Michael, over to you. Like, I guess, okay, like, being forced to watch a bunch of films featuring the same actor 
and I guess basically like like being forced to appreciate different things because like what is good about him and what is good about the movie changes so dramatically and that like you know these movies aren't great like this is not the pinnacle of filmmaking and so like one thing that like this sort of podcast thing has really been really interesting is that like I guess basically like being flexible about uh, expectations and that like, you know, a recurring theme in this film that we talked about is this idea that like, I mean, this is not an ass kicking extravaganza, you know, like this is like, you know, again, the, the, the for the first Seagal punch is thrown like 40 minutes in. I mean, it's like, especially for a film that's like this length, I mean, that's literally halfway through the film. And so... I definitely can't say that the things I appreciate about this film are, you know, objectively speaking, it, it, like in comparison to every other film, outstanding in and of themselves. But, I mean, you know, within the context of it being a failed action film, I mean, I think it's stupendous. Like, I mean, if this is, like, if this is the film that tanked B-level action star's career, I mean, that's crazy. Like, I mean, it's not that bad of a movie you know so yeah it's right in the it's right in like the meaty bell curve of like the good bad movie yeah. stuff yeah <laughs> the meaty bell curve yeah like yeah. i mean like like this like i don't know like like it, it like a lot of people and i mean especially in a rock Look, we're really like three shades of beige on this one would you recommend this to someone either of you i wouldn't see i wouldn't either okay so like the thing for me with seagal is like i'm never going to recommend the best Seagal movie because in terms of things that's never going to be I it, it, the best Seagal movie I it, like <laughs> because like if the, if someone's looking for an action movie they're probably looking for something a little bit different a little bit more sophisticated a little bit more up with whatever Fast and Furious has done I like the like you can recommend a really bad movie which is also something that Seagal dips into so and you can do those almost universally if someone's looking for a bad movie there are characteristics to a good bad movie so I'm much more likely to recommend those sorts of things. So I wouldn't recommend this because it's just kind of like an, eh. the one thing that I think was probably the biggest missed opportunity of this movie has nothing to do with quality, but more to do with missing the message, which is that if Steven Seagal wasn't in the starring role, which again, I have to sidebar, then it wouldn't get made. But if he wasn't in the starring role, this becomes perhaps an interesting parable to how we view the Native American experience in America, where you have an entire culture wiped out disease. They make kind of a corny joke reference to it where, you know, kind of like get messed back for smallpox, which is a stupid sort of Hollywood joke. But it is existing on an interesting parable, which I imagine maybe the novel touches on a bit more, which is that... Uh, you know, Western civilization did wipe out an entire culture of people through disease and hostile takeover. And what if a disease then wiped them out right back? Like, it seems like there could almost be like an interesting like TV miniseries there. And I felt like that was the biggest letdown, which is there is a big chunk of meat left on that, like, theoretical bone. I completely agree with everything you're saying, except for the novel part. Because Gary, this is funny. Okay. So in the novel, mm. Gary, for this, so uh, the 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 world is basically ended. There's like a few thousand people left in uh, North America, and so uh, the the protagonist, uh, he's been hiding away in this isolated cabin with his family. Uh, the person who infects his family 
is a Native American. Oh, oh, Jesus. It's, like, it's literally the exact opposite. It's even worse. Yeah, it's, oh, it's God. Even worse. All right. Uh, but no, no. Like, th- this is a really good point because, like, like there's an obvious parallel, and we kind of touched on this a bit, uh, that, you know, these cr- cracker militia guys are anti-government. Yeah. And uh, shouldn't Native Americans be anti-government in the same way don't they have more rights to be so you can mm-hmm. riff on that uh the issue of smallpox and i mean like you know like 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 it's used in a kind of dummy way but i mean like there is a lot of truth to the overuse of antibiotics and i mean like even in western hospitals right now like there's a lot of uh, education about and i mentioned before like uh, antimicrobial stewardship basically that like if you overuse uh, antibiotics, like it will do something bad. This isn't like an anti-vaxxers thing. Like, I mean, it's a scientifically proven thing. No, it's more like just don't go nuts with the hand sanitizer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thing. Yeah. And so, like, you, I can, I think you're completely right that, like, I mean, there is some interesting, both scientific- buried in there. There's a kernel of really interesting idea. Yeah. That if it wasn't a fucking white guy in the lead and it wasn't a Hollywood movie that was paced an hour and fifteen minutes, we could maybe get into something interesting. So I don't know. HBO, call me. We'll work on something. <laughs> no, and it, it's interesting because it's like, like, there's little kind of like the novel's ridiculous. Like, it gets ridiculous. So there's all this like Cold War stuff, and she's insane. But like, like, there's little kind of nuggets in there that are kind of interesting. In the same way that in this film, there's little nuggets that are kind of interesting. But I mean, like, the novel's not great. Uh, but like the film, I mean, like. It's not great either. So, I mean, like, both of them kind of don't do any justice to the little nuggets that could have been interesting. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's not not like an Omega Man or, like, I Am Legend situation where they had a great source material and they fucked it up. Yeah. It's like the source material wasn't great to Mm -hmm. turn off with. I mean, it was certainly a lot more epic, but, I mean, it, it, it was more than $23 million. All right, so I guess we have to get to uh, what we want to do for our next episode. of the Beast. Yeah. We're going to go dip a little bit forward, jumping ahead to 2003. What? Really? It's after yep. this? Mm-hmm. He looks good in it. Yeah. Oh. Uh, so <laughs> uh, we'll give a little bit of a primer, Belly of the Beast. Uh, Stephen Skull does Hong Kong action. We'll leave it at that. If that doesn't wet your whistle, you weird freaks still listening to this podcast, I don't know what will. 